Robert said it was around about October. It was a cool night, and he said he was walking. And he ride done left him out by the levee. And so he was walking up the road there, walking up to Beulah. Then they're walking on the road, and it was a real dark night because of the clouds. It was a full moon, but the clouds were getting front of the moon to make it real dark. He's walking up the road with his guitar on his shoulder. And um, he walking up the road, and he said he was getting a little worried because he had heard some footsteps off out in the ditch, on the bar ditch there side of the road. He come, come to figure out it was some kind of dog or something because he heard it growling a few times and, and snarling. And uh, uh, a little while later, it fall behind him a little bit, and it'd bark, and it'd roll around in the ditch. It's kind of some, some, some kind of like crazy dog, like somebody done poisoned it or something. Um, he said he even thought they'd seen his eyes glowing, but it was just the way the moonlight hit it when the cloud parted. As he come up on the crossroad, you know, he's keeping his eye on that dog over in that ditch that's been following him. And uh, next thing he know, he said he seen this big old barrel-chested uh, man out in the road, a big old black man, black as, a, black as a pitch of night. And the man knew him by name. He said, Robert Johnson, we've been waiting on you, Robert Johnson. And uh, Robert said, what do you mean you waiting on me? And he said, uh, I've been waiting right here for you, Robert Johnson. He goes, do you know who I am? I'm here to give you everything you ever wanted, Robert Johnson. Carrying that guitar on your shoulder like that. You can throw that guitar over there in that ditch and be just like all them other guitar players, a dime a dozen. Or you can let me take care of you and you'd be the best guitar player anybody ever heard. He goes, I'm here to make you an offer. Okay, so I heard, so we're on the bus with my dad to go to Dallas. For One time, when I was little, uh, my dad ran a church. A man came out of the restaurant. Yeah, it's just a story. Hello and welcome to the Just A Story podcast. I'm Jake. And I'm Sam, and we're here to tell you a story. Each week we take a look at the stories we tell over and over again, what our fears and fables, myths and misdeeds say about us as humans. Um, we just want to thank everybody that's uh, followed us on Twitter and you know dropped us a line, and we have a couple of new reviews, so a special thank you to you guys. We want to drink wine with all of you too. Mwah. I'm worried everyone thinks we're alcoholics. We're not alcoholics. We just have children and need wine. I <laughs> also want to mention that we have a new project that we've been working on for a while now that we think that if you like this podcast, you'll like it because it's kind of a historical storytelling in the same vein as this, but also very different. It's our experiment. It's our grand experiment. So, so it's one big story with chapters, and each chapter is going to tell a different historical legend, but in the framework of a larger story as well. And it's set in a dime museum, and it's going to be called Just a Story Audio Dime Museum. So be on the lookout for that. Yes, keep an eye on for that. So today, today we are talking about a really fun topic. One of my favorites. Something that you know a lot about. Yeah. The deal with the devil. Yes. So Sam, what did you sell your soul for? Cheetos. How'd that work out? I don't have any more Cheetos. Is it a big bag of Cheetos? No. It was, it was a bad decision. I was like seven at the time. 
and I sold my soul for Cheetos and one of those cool Ninja Turtle uh, ice creams that had the gumball eyes. Oh, oh, well, that's bad. I know, right? That's better. Yeah. No. I, I actually have not sold my soul. I have not had any takers. No one's sure that I have one. But I did grow up listening to country music, and this is one of country music's favoritest things to talk about. Yeah, so the, the idea of selling your soul to the devil is very much entrenched in music and very much entrenched in folklore. Yeah, absolutely. And I love how some of the things we said that it's a very American idea. Oh, yeah. I keep reading that over and over again. Like, as I was researching this, I kept coming across people who'd be like, this is a long-standing American tradition since the time of Plymouth Rock and blah, blah, blah. I was like, um, try again, fellas. This is a, as long as there has been anyone to talk about it kind of tradition. Yeah, so let's go back. Let's, let's get go our, way, way back. Let's get our way back machine. Let's talk about some of the folklore that involves selling your soul to the devil. And musicians specifically. Yeah, it seems like that really is, they're very linked. So I love Greek mythology. Me too. So does our five-year-old. Yeah, well, when I was that age, my dad would always tell me stories of Odysseus explains a lot um yeah i grew up with the dolores book of greek myths that was you know my prized possession as a kid i went to stay with my aunts and every summer she would buy me a new book and i checked that out from my library repeatedly when i had to return it at the end of the school year i decided that i knew exactly which book i wanted and you know promptly urged her to purchase that for me when i came to visit her and it became my very favorite thing i owned and i still have it yeah that's where we read to remy let's go all the way back to ancient Greece and the story of Orpheus. I know Orpheus. Yeah, so Orpheus was known as one of the greatest musicians in all of Greece, if not all of the civilized world. So he was getting married to a beautiful woman named Eurydice. And as she was walking in tall grass near her wedding, a satyr came up. Not a satyr. And as you know... Satyr, it isn't so. Oh. And as you know, these satyrs with their music... And their lustful appetites are not someone you'd want to run into. Your your virginal bride. Yes. And as he's, I guess, propositioning her, she tries to escape and falls into a nest of vipers. As you do. Okay. Bit bad and luck. Dies. Orpheus, looking for his beautiful wife, finds her dead. Dun dun dun. Okay. And he is so mournful. He plays the saddest songs ever heard by the gods and nymphs to where they all cry. They tell him to implore Hades to release his wife. So he travels down to the underworld and he plays them his sad songs. And he's the only person to ever soften Hades and Persephone's heart. Sounds pretty powerful. Yeah, and with that, he's able to convince them. He makes a deal with the devil or Hades, Mm -hmm. who's not the devil. Like the closest analogous character in Greek mythology. So he makes the deal that he can have her back. Yeah. And he will walk out of the underworld and she will follow him. And he cannot look back until they have both exited the underworld. Right. And as he is getting near the entrance and he crosses the path, he cannot wait any longer. And he looks back just before she is out and she vanishes forever. Plato. I don't know if you've heard of him. Yeah, I think so. Okay. Ever the romantic he was. His criticism of the Orphean legend 
was that Orpheus was a coward. Oh. And some fighting he, words. Yeah, he was a coward. Because if he had really loved her, he would have just died to be with her. Right, and, right. Plato even thought that the gods were mocking him by giving him this idea. Because Hades was not one to bargain lightly. And I've always associated with this with the story of Lot's wife in the Bible, where she's not supposed to look back, and she does, and she turns into a pillar of salt. I've always thought those two were very similar, so that's an interesting point. Here we have a musician. Music is moving and magical. He gives him special powers. He makes a deal with the devil and doesn't pan out so well for him. So let's see if things get any better as we move into the future. Right, so I'm guessing that all we have left are just American stories. Oh, yeah, absolutely. No, this one's Transylvanian, actually. Are there vampires? There are no vampires. So sad. It is a gypsy legend that was collected in 1899, so obviously predating that. And it's called The Creation of the Violin. And this is about a young girl who's fallen in love with a huntsman. And she sings to him every time he passes her by. And he never notices her. Which, as you can imagine, if you are a young girl in love, this is just very frustrating. So, as you do when you're a frustrated girl in love and the object of your affection refuses to notice you, she calls the devil. Of course. Of course. Because that's what Cosmo says. That was the article right after the Kemper interview. So she calls the devil, and he comes to her and he shows her a mirror. And she sees a reflection. And he says to her, show this to the huntsman, and he will fall in love with you. And she says, cool, thanks. The next day, she shows the huntsman the mirror, but he recognizes that it's an instrument of the devil. And he runs away. Then she goes back to the devil, and she's like, hey, that didn't work out so well for me. And he's like, well, here's a fun fact. You and the huntsman both looked in the mirror and both saw your reflections, and that means that you're both now mine. But I'll help you get him, because I told you I would. But first, I need you to bring your four brothers to me. And she says, cool. And so she goes and gets her four brothers and brings them to the devil, and he turns them into strings. He says, and I also need your father. And she says, no big deal. And so she goes and gets him, and he turns her father into the body of a violin and puts the strings made from her brothers on top of the body made from her father. He says, I also need your mother. She says, I've got one of those, and she goes and gets her and brings her to the devil, and the devil turns her mother into a bow and uses her mother's hair to make the string. She must have really liked her family. Or really liked the huntsman. Maybe yeah. both. Like, I've got to get away from these people. <laughs> this random dude is not that bad looking. Yeah. I'm going to go with him. Satan, you can have these guys make a violin on your shit. I've just got to get this house. You would not believe. They listen to Fox News all the time. So the devil takes his new instrument that he's made out of her family, and he plays it, and she dances joyously and rapturously to the music created by this instrument. And he tells her to play this for the huntsman, and he will fall in love with her. And so the next day, she plays the instrument, the new violin made of her family, and the huntsman falls madly in love with her. And nine days later, the devil appears before them and says, I am your lord. I own you. Worship me. And they say, no thanks. And he says, too bad. And he throws them over their shoulder and carries them off to hell. And the instrument is left in the forest. And a gypsy man discovers it. And he is able to play the instrument and 
control the emotions of his audience because it is made of an entire family and has all this story inside of it. And it's an instrument that the devil made himself. Yeah, so that's interesting. Another story of deals with the devil, music being involved, and having this deal just go awry. It's like, they're almost like like the old genie stories where you would ma- make a wish and it would come true in a literal sense, but it would never be what you actually wanted. Right, yeah, you didn't read the fine print. Exactly. Mm-hmm. The devil's a great lawyer. Or he just has all the good ones in hell. <laughs> ah. Sorry, Dad. <laughs> Shakespeare did say we should kill all the lawyers. Okay. So, now that we've done Transylvania and Greece, we finally make it to America. But you know what? I'm going to say this isn't just America. Where is it, honey? It's got to be Texas. It's got to be Texas, and it is. So, one more legend. So there was a celebrated fiddle player, Adam Gimble. He used to always boast that he could play so well that he would charm rattlesnakes. So someone came up to him one day, this dark figure, and dared him to try it. He said, I bet I can charm more rattlesnakes than you. I bet you a $50 bill that I can. So they go out at night. I'm sure there's a big moon in the sky. Stars at night are shining big and bright. Deep in the heart of Texas. (laughs) So Adam brings out a rifle because he doesn't know this guy. Well, he's going out where there's snakes and stuff, too. I mean, well, he's a Texan. I think he just travels with his rifle all the time. Of course, he brings his fiddle along. Now, when he meets the stranger, he reveals that he's the devil and that they're going to have a competition to see who can charm more snakes. Each snake will be marked by a colored dot for who charms them. So I guess Adam roused up his bow and played his fiddle hard. He played all night, and snakes just kept coming, marked with his glowing colored dot. The devil finally stops him, and he takes a turn, and he starts playing a song, and more snakes come, all marked with the devil's dot. When they're done, Adam's surprised to see that he has twice as many snakes as the devil does. So the devil gives a nice, funny little bow, Says, you've won. You've charmed more snakes. Slaps a $50 bill down on the rocks and vanishes. Special effects, folks. Adam reaches down to grab the $50 bill. He forgot about all those snakes. He starts to hear the little rattle of the rattlesnake near him. And as a good Texan, he reaches for his gun. Discovers the gun is not there. The devil in his... Odd little bow stole it, and Adam is left alone, defenseless, surrounded by rattlesnakes. Eesh. Yeah, that's that's less than ideal, the way that played out there. So, again, we have music. Again, we have a deal with the devil that doesn't, you know, pan out so well. And we have going along with the devil's plans, right? Like, making deals. Right, and each time that person thinks they've one, they beat the devil, but everyone knows you can't beat the devil. Chris Christopherson did, but I mean, he's a special case. By the way, Chris Christopherson, if you're listening, you're my favorite. Yeah, so all these stories do have lots of common themes. Yeah, they're presented in very different ways across various cultures over lots and lots of years. 
But essentially, you know, they all do involve three basic ingredients. Okay. So you've got music that has supernatural power. In Orpheus's case, it, his music is so sad that it charms Hades. And then you have this girl who, you know, has previously been trying to get the attention of this huntsman and can't without this this instrument that allows her to command his attention. And later, the instrument is used to command the emotions of the audience. And then in the Texas story, you have a guy whose music is so amazing it can charm rattlesnakes. So supernatural. I don't. I don't think most people's music can do those things. So right. So they all have music kind of involved in these stories. Yeah, and all of the music has supernatural power. And then um, you have everyone making an agreement. Orpheus agrees not to look back. He falls down on his end of the bargain, which is not the case in the other two stories. Right, but it can be argued that it was set up that way. He was set up to fail. Right, and I guess in the Gypsy story, she defaults too because she doesn't want to worship the devil after she has the love of the huntsman. Right. Like, what do you think you're going to have to do if you make a deal with the devil? Live happily ever after. Right? Right? That's how the, yeah, that's how the Disney movies go. In the Texas story, he agrees to go out to the rock and play in this competition with the devil and never really ask the devil what he wants if he wins. So we're left wondering there. But he obviously enters into the agreement by going and participating in this competition. Right, but people do keep forgetting that the devil's not going to give you something for free. I mean, he seems like a pretty legit guy, right? Yeah. He appears out of nowhere and, like, has magic mirrors and asks you to kill your family. and Yeah, what could go wrong? That's the third theme that I keep seeing is this, this kind of bargain that has consequences that were not anticipated kind of break each of these down a little bit which we like to do of course and i think we should start with the the basics okay there's an agreement that you're making with the devil right so these agreements with the devil can be made in lots of different ways sometimes they have to be at a certain place sometimes they have to be on a certain day to call a certain demon Mm -hmm. um you can have written packs of course Signed in blood. Ooh. Or, of course, you could sign your name into Satan's red book. Is it a red book? Okay, I thought it was a black book. Black Philip. (laughs) Okay, we saw The Witch the other day. Highly recommend The Witch. Highly recommend it. If you haven't seen it, pause the show. Go find the three theaters in your state that are still showing it. (laughs) Go see it. Pee your pants. Sam almost walked out. (laughs) I did. All right, continue. We'll continue. We'll be here when you get back. An interesting thing about these contracts is that the demons all have a specific signature. There are even books about this in the 16 and 1700s. There are still books about this. Right, but they're all based on that book. A lot of offshoots of the Golden Dawn and like Crowley's sex and stuff like that definitely still rely on like sigil magic and demonic summoning and interesting little offshoot of this is that there are still like big orders of people who do this shit. And then, of course, you could, as in these stories, have an oral pact. And that would be just where you make an oral agreement with the demon or the devil. And Is that going to hold up in a court of law? Well, so they figured out a way to do that. Mm. Something called the diabolical mark or the witch's mark. And this is where the devil would touch the person to seal the pact. 
and it would leave a spot on them where they could not feel pain. And so this was usually in a secret place, so somewhere that you would have to strip the person down and search. So basically they just had to find a freckle, <laughs> a supernumerary nipple, a birthmark, and then you would be a witch. So if you have three nipples, you're definitely a witch. Yeah, which is more common than you would think. And so there is a great story about this. Of course, the diabolical marks were used in all of these witch and sorcery trials throughout Europe and the United States. People that went around as witch hunters, it was one of their specialties to find this. Mm. But one of my favorite stories is with Father Urbain Grandier. So he was a French priest in Loudon in the 1600s. And he was not exactly all about those vows of celibacy. Yeah. He was kind of a philanderer. And in 1632, he was accused by a group of Ursuline nuns on bewitching them. With his papal staff? In a way. He um, supposedly sent the demon Asmode, who is one of the kind of head demons, and he's the one that represents the deadly sin of lust and so in some accounts they had your classic possession symptoms the tongue speaking in tongues the thrashing around etc but in other tellings of it they would have dirty dreams about him where he would appear and he would coerce them into oh my goodness so yeah, hot priests still make me uncomfortable, so this is the original hot priest, right? Nothing will make a lady clutch her pearls faster than a hot priest. Oof. Clutch your rosary. <laughs> a little tighter. A few extra Hail Marys tonight. Um, and so, of course, exorcisms were performed. Yay! He, he was arrested. Was Ed Warren involved? Um, not yet. Okay. <laughs> and so he was arrested, and they did have an ecclesiastical trial. And he was acquitted. Okay. They were like, this is ridiculous. Even back then, in the 1600s, they were like, this is ridiculous. Okay. But, unfortunately for Father Grandier, he was an enemy of Cardinal Richelieu. Ooh, that's a bad enemy to have. Cardinal Richelieu called a new trial, brought in some winch hunters, and they presented some pretty damning evidence. Dun, dun, dun. Like, okay. Wait, was that a pun? Yes, it was. <laughs> and they presented... A contract that was signed in blood. Blood? By Father Grandier mm. and Lucifer, yeah. Satan, mm. Beelzebub, Leviathan, LMA, and Astaroth. And I'll read a little bit of it. In him do we promise the love of women, the flower of virgins, the respect of monarchs, honors, lust, and power. He will go whoring three days long. The carousel will be dear to him. He offers us once in the year a seal of blood. Under the feet he will trample the holy things of the church, and he will ask us many questions. With this pact, he will live twenty years happy on the earth of men, and will later join us to sin against God. Bound in hell, in the council of demons, signed, and then had all of their very specific seals. Doesn't it say like somebody is the writer? Yes, it is say Balbareth writer. <laughs> So it's all very official sounding. I adore that contract. I think it is actually more well written than the majority of legal contracts today. It is, and it actually is still around. I'll post a picture on Twitter of it. Because I think it's just fascinating that it's still there. 
Right. And of course, since this was very much a fixed trial, mm-hmm. he was found guilty. They did strip him down, found his devil's mark. Of course they did. And tortured the hell out of him. Mm. You know, he had water torture, the Spanish boot, and they eventually decided that they were going to burn him at the stake. But in order to give him a little bit of mercy, he was a priest, they were going to hang him first. As he was about to be hanged. He went to say his last words, but all of the monks threw holy water at him so he couldn't speak. Oh, because he was the devil. And then in all of the excitement, um, he was not hanged. And they lit the pyre and he was burned alive. Oops. Aw, I feel so sorry for this guy. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's just a great example of how someone could just forge a contract with the devil for you and say, oh yeah, look, you signed a contract. Yeah, so like, I have to wonder, as God-fearing men, what is the penance for forging a contract with the devil as evidence in a trial against a priest? It can't be good. No. I think it is interesting that we just still we use the phrase like a deal with the devil, a mm-hmm. pact with the devil, meaning. So when we say someone's made a deal with a devil, we mean that they have abandoned their moral virtue and taken on, sold their soul out, I guess. Right. And there's a kind of a similar definition to what someone would call a Faustian bargain. Oh, yes. A Faustian bargain. I'm familiar. And so this comes from the legend of Faust. Right. Faust. Christopher Marlowe did a Faust. So Faust is a German legend. Right, that predates any formal literary interpretation. And there are several historical figures that are put as the basis of it. But we probably have the level of familiarity with the legend of Faust that we do um, in the cultural zeitgeist. Because of writers like Christopher Marlowe, who's a contemporary of Shakespeare. Yeah, he's the guy that everyone says actually wrote all of Shakespeare's plays. Which, yeah, I know. Uh, Shakespeare wrote Shakespeare. But whatever. But, you know, he wrote the play and then mysteriously died. Faust? He wrote Faust and then died? Mm Mm-hmm. That's great. Oh, that makes me happy. It was also famously rendered in the illustrious public television series, Wishbone. You may recall this program from years past began with a passage that said what's the story wishbone let's wag another tail yeah and so we were kids watching this story played out by a dog and in a costume a costume and human actors i'm not sure who decided that they should do faust on a children's show but it was done but it's based on a novel by goethe a german writer whose version of the tale is probably the most widely propagated. Right. It is considered one of a German masterpiece. And in the tale, you have a character, uh, Dr. Faust, and he is a scholar and he loves knowledge, but not divine knowledge. He wants human knowledge. And at this time, that was considered almost heresy. Mm-hmm. All of the most sacrilegious. Edu- right. right. And all the most well-educated men were members of the church. So he did not want to study theology, and he preferred to be called a doctor of medicine instead of a doctor of theology. That rascal. But he was a very sad person, and he was just sad because he did not have this unlimited knowledge. And so he is visited by, by Mephistopheles, not necessarily the devil, but a messenger of the devil, in 
Guta's version, mm-hmm. he makes a bet with Faust that he can satisfy him uh, because Faust feels that he will never be happy. Because he can't know everything. It's one of the ideas behind it. Mm-hmm. And so he takes him around the world and has all these experiences with him and Faust never feels happiness. And he even helps him seduce a young woman, Gretchen. And in this lustful affair, he destroys her life and she dies. But her innocence saves her and she's able to enter heaven. Lucky for Gretchen. Right. And so eventually Mephistopheles is able to have Faust have one moment of happiness. And that's when he says... All right, it's time to go. Most of the tellings of the legend, he dies and goes to hell. I mean, that seems like legit. That seems like some German devil shit. Yeah, okay. Yeah, and surprisingly, in Goetz's version, he is saved by God's grace and by the pleading of the young, innocent Gretchen. Well, that's quite a twist. It really is interesting how we still use the term Faustian. Mm-hmm. You, know, you still have a Faustian deal. And it's like when an ambitious person surrenders their moral integrity to achieve that power and success. So like that deal with the devil. But I always feel like it has that second layer where something bad's going to happen as well. Not only are you compromising your integrity for it, but you're going to suffer unforeseen consequences. You're going to get what you want, but not in the way you want. Yeah, you're going to burn bridges on the way there. I always think of the monkey's paw. So yes, Faustian bargain. I think that is definitely a part of all of these legends. And the third component of these legends that I think is so interesting is the link to music. You always hear things called the devil's music. Oh yeah, for time immemorial we've been talking about the devil's music. I mean now it's like rock and roll is the devil's music. Or you know, rap music is the devil and it's going to just corrupt our youth. Mm-hmm, yes, obviously. Um, but before rock and roll and before rap it was the blues were you know very scandalous because they took people out of the service of gospel music and put them in bars playing songs about women and whiskey and all manner of ill influence things oh yes and the devil too he was there and then jazz music oh that was terrible right and i love that even the terms used are really negative terms the slang terms from this music like you have like a a juke joint which juke comes from the word like to deceive or like to trick. And you have like jazz, which is where the term jazz comes from, which some people think means like to screw. No. Because a lot of early jazz musicians were in Storyville, the red light district of New Orleans. It's like all considered like lustful and sinful and all this. And before you have this this frowning upon jazz and blues, you had frowning upon the waltz. Not the waltz. The waltz. Was I did good. that in fifth grade PE class. Okay, well, they would have frowned upon you. Um, but in the, Catholic school. I know. <laughs> but the waltz was considered very scandalous because it had that pulsing rhythm that mimicked a certain intimate act. Ooh, get me flustered. I know. And so before that, anything on violin was considered the devil's music. We really didn't like any celebratory songs, peasant dances, things of that nature. We're just all very bad for sure. We, we were not fans. So yes, the devil's music has been a term used as long as people have been looking for things to get pissy about. You can really think of it as 
You know, you always think of the angels in heaven singing eternally God's praises. Mm-hmm. But you know, Lucifer was an angel. Right. And so he must also be singing. But as Lucifer is the opposite, the flip of the coin of God and all that is good in Christian mythos, theology. Yeah, let's go. We're in Texas. I better say theology. And we're in Austin. Then, therefore, he must have the opposite of that good, holy, praising God music. Right, so music can be completely good, and that's what you do in heaven. It can also be completely evil, and that's what you do in hell. Hmm. This is what this uh, black and white kind of reasoning leads us to, right? Of course. And this is what's being used in early Christian communities. So, yes, the devil must have a music. But another reason that people think the devil is associated with music is because in iconography, he is kind of blended with that image of the satyr and... The satyr is very associated with music and revelry and debauchery and all of these things. And for those that don't know, a satyr is... It is a Greek mythological creature who is a hybrid of man and goat. Right, and that's where you get that that evil goat. Right. Black Philip. Would you stop (laughs) with the Black Philip? You're creeping me out, okay? Okay, so a satyr is a half man, half goat, and you have Pan and his Pan pipes and things like that. In that way, they kind of blended this figure that's already associated with music and trouble with the devil. And so some people think that's where the devil got his music. But then there are also the sociological prejudices that get lumped in with any folklore. During the Reformation, you have this really, once and for all, we're just going to say it, we don't like these guys, about the moops. The moops. That's what the card says. The Moors. The, the Moors. It says Moops. It's it's Moors. The Moors, for those who don't know, Jacob. The Moors. <laughs> the Moops. The Moops. So the Moors came from Middle East and African area. They were the the Muslims of the time. And they were predominantly located in which European country? In Spain. That's right. And so, of course, they came over from, like I said, Middle East and Africa And it's thought that they brought these bowed instruments from that area. And the idea of these bowed string instruments most likely originates from more Asian countries and kind of traveled along that way with the Moors bringing the bowed instruments over to Europe. So the bowed instruments of Asia would have been, you know, those traditional things that we're not as familiar with. But so, yes, there are instruments from the east that predate things like the violin which would have been the more commonly identified instruments of the time but they would have still had these associations with the moors and with the east non-christian populations so these instruments were you know predated violins and their derivations in europe but they still kind of carry this connotation of being foreign Eastern, non-Christian, definitely not on Martin Luther's list of approved objects, which I don't know what was. Wives. So violins were brought over, but I think, were they quickly taken up by European culture? Well, they were, especially in households that would not have been able to, you know, say, have a piano. So they kind of got this connotation of being a lower class instrument as time went on. They were one of the things that people could carry around. They're extremely portable. 
and they were used by a lot of peasant bands at feasts and celebrations. They also came to be associated with um, sailors, which that is, you know, especially in Britain, they really did not like sailors because they came from other places, and there's extremely xenophobic population up until very recently. So sailors had things like violins and harmonicas and all these portable instruments, and those were definitely lower class, definitely associated with disease and criminality, which it's thought that criminality was like a symptom of the greater mental disease of being poor. You basically brought that on yourself. Not enlightened thinking. Yes, 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 yes. Right, so the, we know that the devil's associated with music. Mm. We've been talking about violin, so I'm assuming we're going to lead into a violin being related to the devil. Yes. Now, besides Charlie Daniels, is there any real person that is said to have made a deal with the devil to learn to play the devil's fiddle? Well, I don't think Nicola Paganini would have said that he played the fiddle, but I do think that he might have told you with a wink and a nod that he did make a deal with the devil. He was a famous Italian violinist, and he lived from 1782 to 1840. And he was a virtuoso. People say he was the first rock star, which they say that about pretty much everybody. But I kind of think this guy made a rock star in the vein of Alice Cooper kind of rock star. He bought into it. Oh, or, or he's, yeah. Just like he sold it. Yeah. People thought that he made a deal with the devil, and he let people believe it. Yeah, because, I mean... Why not? How much fun is that? He was massively tall and lanky, and people said that he had an 18-inch handspan. So he was already kind of supernatural looking. Yeah, you have these pictures of his hands, these drawings that you can see. And yeah, I wonder if he had, like, Ehlers-Danlos. Yeah, a connective tissue, genetic malformation where you're extremely flexible. And right. some people even say, yeah, it might have been Marfans, which would cause you to have very, very big hands and long fingers. To add to that, people talked a lot about the way his shoulders would move, and he would wear these big black capes, lean all over the stage as he played, and, pe and people described him as a bat. He would also do things like dress all in black, and when he lost his teeth toward the end of his life, he didn't replace them with anything, so he just let that go and like let his face become more sunken, and he would take carriages drawn by four black horses to his engagements. And so he really let people buy it. He knew that that legend preceded him, and he was okay with it, because he knew that it fascinated people. Right, it had people drawn into him. But one of the common legends about Paganini is that when he was six years old, his mother made an agreement with the devil, and she sold his she soul. Sold, she sold Panini's soul? It's not Panini. It's Paganini. Look, I, I speak the third most Italian here. Honey, there are two of us. Yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah, you're right. Okay. The legend was that when he was six years old, his mother sold his soul to the devil, ensuring that he would become the most famous performer of his time. And there were also rumors that he was the son of the devil, or that he was the devil. So he had to provide letters from his mother to the press in order to prove that he had human parentage. So were these like the first birthers? They wanted to see the birth certificate, Donald Trump said. So he was incredibly talented. There was something about him that was remarkable. Like his physique was really interesting because like there are drawings of him touching his finger flat down to his palm with no space. If you try to do that, like I know I'm describing it and it doesn't make any sense, but if you try to do that, like you'll have a little gap where your top knuckle is. His laid flat. 
and they could extend all the way back and all the way forward. You know, there were legends about him coming in and reading a piece of music by sight that people said was impossible to play even after preparation. And he was given a Stradivarius violin for mm. completing this task. So in another legend about his prowess, he borrowed a violin from someone that was playing, you know, second chair or whatever. Played it for a performance and went to hand it back to the man. And the man said, no, no, I don't care to have that back, thank you. He was afraid the supernatural powers that Paganini had infused in the instrument would follow him wherever he went if he accepted the violin. And one of my personal favorites, and this harkens back to the gypsy legend, in my opinion, um, was based on the theme and the idea that Paganini was an impossible womanizer. And it's said that he killed one of the lovers that he took and put her soul inside his violin and used her intestines as this eternal source of gut for her strings. And when he played his instrument on stage, sometimes the audience members would claim that they could hear the screams of women coming from the violin. That'd make me make the sign of the cross when I went to see him. Lots of people did. But, you know, there are other stories about him where he, you know, like he was playing a performance and he broke all but one string and he continued to play and played an entire concerto using a single string. This is a big legend surrounding him. But I guess when word got back to him that he had done this, he said, I can do that, and wrote entire pieces of music for a single string on the violin. That's amazing. He is, his music really is amazing. Listen to it. I'm not a big classical music consumer, but even I can be impressed by it. Does it live up to the Grateful Dead's Friend of the Devil? Close. It was very well established that he was associated with the devil. He embraced it during his lifetime. People called him a hexason, which is a witch's child. And he was actually not allowed to be buried in consecrated ground for five years after his death because the Catholic Church was so concerned that he might be involved with the devil. So this is a great example of the devil's fiddle music, mm-hmm. which is still mythology. You know, we're joking about Charlie Daniels, but that's a song that everyone knows and is basically in the American songbook. Yeah, I mean, I really do think it is. I mean, it's cheesy as all hell, but you put that on, 99% of people are going to sing along. And everyone knows the devil's part's better. Charlie Daniels himself has said that the devil's part is harder to play. So why'd he win? (laughs) I don't know. Because it's a better story that way. But in my opinion, the best American musical selling your soul to the devil's story is the immortal Robert Johnson. I would never argue with you about that. I think that that story is as close to perfect as anyone could ever hope their biography to become. Right, so Robert Johnson was a blues musician in the Mississippi Delta in the 1930s. And he was getting known around the Mississippi Delta as an amazing blues musician. Tori even had some recordings done, and he has... Which was very unusual for the 1930s. Right, especially if you weren't picked up and moved. To Detroit or Nashville. He had a few recordings done, and his fame really grew as he almost became infamous. It's said that he, one night, ventured out to the crossroads at midnight where he sold his soul to the devil Mm. to learn to play guitar. And according to the legend, Johnson's new musical prowess was immediate. 
you know, he had grown up and no one really knew that he could play guitar. Yeah, even the Van Bluesman Sun House, who was like a contemporary of Johnson, said that he was a decent harmonica player, but a terrible guitarist. And at the age of 19, after his wife and child died during childbirth, he disappeared for a few weeks. Mm-hmm. And when he returned, he had these amazing guitar skills that no one could explain. Mysterious. So you have these people who are saying it was immediate, right? So that's already a little suspect. Because guitar is one of those thousand-hour things, I would think. You know what I'm talking about? Like where you 100,000 put- hours? Oh, God, is it 100,000? I'm never going to be an expert at anything. But yeah, you spend 100,000 hours doing something, you become fantastic at it. So I don't think there are 100,000 hours in the amount of time that he disappeared. So for him to be mediocre and then return a virtuoso, crazy. So after this deal with the devil, he became an amazing guitar player, but was still just playing around the Mississippi Delta. Well, he went up to Chicago, some too. And he recorded in San Antonio. Yeah. So he was he was bouncing around the country, but he was literally hopping train cars. He was not traveling in style. He was not supported by a studio. He was hand to mouth and, you know, whiskey bottle to whiskey bottle. He was not living a great lifestyle. He was enjoying a little bit of success and notoriety because of these recordings that they happened, you know, not even that they were incredibly well received. He was still like literally hopping in train cars to get from town to town had no plan no tour sketch so in his lifetime he only recorded dean songs like i said a few people knew who he was but he had not reached any level of fame and he unfortunately died when did he die sam he died when he was 27 years old that makes him the first member of the 27 club i happen to think that if you are going to have a club for musicians who die because of their lifestyle, you have to include Robert Johnson. So did his lifestyle lead to his death? Without a doubt, certainly it did. The most commonly and widely accepted story of Robert Johnson's death has to do with his two greatest vices, whiskey and women. So apparently, Johnson had gotten involved with a married woman. And her husband was none too happy about it. And so he procured a bottle of whiskey, knowing about Johnson's habits, and put a little strychnine in the bottle. And Johnson consumed the whiskey. And according to a friend who was there, he died three days later on his hands and knees, howling like a dog. That sounds like a great line from a blues song. If it's not, it should be. Get on that. Yes, because he got involved with a married woman who was poisoned by a jealous husband using whiskey. So I think that that is probably rock and roll death I've ever heard. So like we said, his fame was slightly building. And so John Hammond Jr., who was this talent scout who was finding all these amazing black musicians and bringing them to the forefront of American music, decided he was going to host a show mm-hmm. at Carnegie Hall. Carnegie Hall in 1938. Egads. Called From Spirituals to Swing. Oh, it's, yeah, he's showcasing black musicians for white audiences. But but in context, it's great because he's trying to bring this amazing music to a wider audience so that they can appreciate. A wider audience? Wider. (laughs) Okay. Audience so they can appreciate it. He sent someone down to the South to find Johnson and bring him up for this concert. As you do, because he's amazing, right? And that's when they found out that he died. 
But this amazing scene, instead of him playing, they put a record player out on the stage. They gramophone, I'm sure. And played one of his songs so that everyone could appreciate the genius of Robert Johnson. And was that the end of the line for Mr. Johnson? Of course not. In 1961, John Hammond Jr. headed up a release of a full album of his music called King of the Delta Blues Singers. And that is when he really became famous. Where he hit fame was across the Atlantic in the UK. Interesting. When a lot of music really grabbed onto this. And you have heard some of his songs performed by some of the people that he most greatly influenced. Eric Clapton. Eric Clapton and Crossroads is kind of a combination of his song and another song, but it has that song in it. And Crossroads is one of the songs that is used as evidence that he did make a deal with the devil. I went to the crossroads and fell down on my knees. Asked the Lord above, have mercy, save poor Bob if you please. Uh, That line, a lot of people want to read it as he's going to the crossroads to make a deal with the devil. Why would people think that the crossroads have anything to do with the devil? Well, it is interesting because the crossroads has been a source of magic for millennia. Okay. People used to make sacrifices and gifts to Odin Mm. at the crossroads. Santa Odin? Yes, that one. One and the same. And also in voodoo culture. Right. Voodoo, Vodan, and Hoodoo. All recognize a crossroads deity. Papa Legba is a figure that is associated with being sort of like an intermediary. Like a, if you want to, you could call him like a Mercury. He goes between the Loa, or their pantheon, and their human side. And so any practitioner who wishes to make contact with the Loa should go to a crossroads and just wait for Legba to show up. And so it is interesting, there's, there's this history of a crossroads being a mythological meeting place. And at this time, crossroads were very important for hitchhikers, because that's where they could meet a car, get picked up by a car. A lot of people say that's really what the song is about. Right. Is being a poor black man getting stuck at night in the south, in the dark, at a crossroads, and asking for God's help. No, it's the devil. It's definitely the devil. He's not going to deal with the devil. Let's just be honest about it. Well, he does have other songs. Right. Out of his 16 recordings, he has, I think, six or eight that mention something to do with the devil. So that's a pretty high percentage. So what are some of Johnson's other songs that make people think he might have made a deal with the devil? Well, I mean, he has Hellhound on my trail. Mmm. I love that song. You gotta keep moving. Gotta keep moving. Blues falling down like hail. The days keep on reminding me there's a hellhound on my trail. So that's another one. And then he has one about like him and the devil hanging out too, huh? Right. Me and the devil was walking side by side. Now I'm going to beat my woman till I get satisfied. Ooh. Ooh, Robert. And at the end of that song, he says, Baby, I don't care where you bury my body. When I'm dead and gone, you may bury my body down by the highway side. So my old evil spirit can get a greyhound bus and ride. Yeah, that's that's not adding to the legend at all. It's interesting, though, because, you know, Paganini was not allowed to be buried in consecrated ground. His body was moved around and exhumed and all kinds of stuff. And there are actually a couple of places that purport to be the burial site of Robert Johnson. There are two stones in Mississippi in two different places where people claim that he's buried. 
Right, because he was not famous when he died. No, he's only famous now. I personally like to think that he went down to the crossroads at the meeting place of Highway 61 and Highway 49 and waited for the devil to come and tune his guitar because I like that story. Sure, let's make it about race and waiting for a ride. (laughs) No, but it's great because if you do look at it from this classic sense of a deal with the devil, he has made this kind of Faustian bargain. Because he had this amazing talent that he got from the devil. And he did become famous, but not until years after he died. Absolutely. So we have this guy from Italy in the 1700s, 1800s, and then you have this guy from the Mississippi Delta, you know, in the 1930s. Could they really both embody the legend of making a deal with the devil, selling your soul for musical prowess? But they really do. They really do. I mean, let's look at the three things we talked about as really major components of this deal with the devil folklore. Okay, so first of all, you've got to have some kind of contract. Right, some sort of agreement. Mm-hmm. Maybe with, with Panini. Paganini. Right. Uh, with Panini, we have uh, either he made a deal with the devil or his mother sold him to the devil. Right, and... And Robert Johnson going to the crossroads. Making a verbal agreement with the devil to tune his guitar. Yeah. I wonder if anyone checked him for a devil's mark. Hmm, That's an interesting idea. And then we have the Faustian bargain. Right. So unforeseen consequences and compromising your integrity in order to receive greater acclaim. So with Paganini, toward the end of his life, he became incredibly ill and was not able to fill a lot of engagements that he'd made, concert engagements. Um, And his reputation suffered terribly from it. And they'd send him away for rest cures. He had syphilis, he had tuberculosis, people think he may have had Marfan's or another genetic disease. And, you know, he was really suffering a lot and a great deal of pain a lot of the time. And so they'd send him away for these rest cures and they'd come in to find that he'd become like frantic from being isolated and the idea of rest made him so anxious that he would play his violin for like 24 hours straight and have manic fits just needing his violin and if he couldn't get to his violin he was a nervous wreck and so he's shut away from his audience no one can see what he's doing and he's still madly writing music and sort of in this fugue of insanity and mania right and you have robert johnson who turned away from god after the death of his family so he could become famous and learn how to play guitar as good as the devil. And he did become famous. But a good 30 years after he's dead. Mm. And then in all of the legends we talked about, or the folklore we talked about, they all have this magical, supernatural musical element. People said that anyone who listened to Paganini play was put into a trance. And he could command an audience like no one else. And... His incredibly strange stature and physical being gave him this otherworldly feel as he would perform. People often claimed that there would be a double of him sitting in the audience that must have been the devil, you know, dressed exactly like him, that looked exactly like him, a doppelganger kind of thing. Or there would be a man in red commanding his performance on stage right over his shoulder that he couldn't see. Um, and sometimes he would become possessed by this figure during his performances. 
And with Johnson, you just have this legacy of influence. It's like anyone who's heard his music is so completely imprinted with it. Right, and people that try to transcribe his music have a very difficult time, and not just because of the low quality of the recording, but because of how his playing style was so different. And people also think that he might have had Marfans or something like that because his stature and his long fingers and oddly shaped hands and having a bad eye even when he recorded uh he faced a wall so that no one could see him play definitely i think these guys super duper qualify for our folklore deal with the devil checklist so sam why do you think this has become such a staple in our modern american legends well i think that some of it has to do with that sort of black and white divide that we wish we had where music can be either good or bad and this sort of fear of the sex drugs and rock and roll lifestyle we want to believe that this music can compromise our morality or some people do and we need to believe that there is some direct link between the music and the devil right it couldn't be our own inner demons coming out It has to be the music causing it. Mm, Absolutely, without a doubt. Because it's just a story. Right, it's just a story. 